good morning, RCC. It's so good to see all of you. If we've never met before, my name is Gavin, and uh, I love being here at RCC, especially with all your campus locations. It's just so fun to be a part of a church like this. Um, hey, really quick before we uh, jump into soundtracks, uh, uh, part two, uh, just for a second. Uh, Paul and I last night were at dinner, um, and I have been friends with Paul now for some seven or so years and kind of a friend of RCC, like hanging out and preaching and working with the staff and all that for a long time. And so I've watched you guys through lots of seasons, through hurricane seasons and through pandemic seasons, you know, good times and not as good times. And last night at dinner, Paul and I were talking about just kind of what's happening right now at RCC. And uh, I've been helping with Wakulla, what's going on there with our, our campus launch soon. And it was so exciting last night sitting with Paul as he was sharing just all the things that were happening. And so I, he swore me to secrecy. I can't tell you all the things he's gonna share at the Evening of Vision coming up next Sunday, but you you have to come to this, okay? It's here at this location, Mariana location. It's at 5.30 next Sunday night. You, you really need to come. Uh, even if you're kind of new to RCC, you're trying to figure this place out, it's a perfect opportunity to learn kind of what we're about and what's been happening over the last year. It's just spectacular. So you're gonna get to hear all about the four uh, campaign uh, results. I mean, it's so many so many cool things. So I, in fact, if I weren't preaching somewhere else next week, I would be here because uh, I would love to hear it. So anyway, you should make sure you come. Everybody gonna come? Yeah, okay, cool. All right, yeah, Chipley, yeah, everybody, okay, cool. All right, all right, let's get into Soundtracks uh, Part 2. Um, I, when Paul told me about this series, I love the idea because there are so many things that we kind of believe to be true that might not be true, but when we live as if an untruth is a truth, right, it affects everything about our life, and that's true uh, for this conversation, Soundtracks. If I were to go back, say, um, I don't know, maybe six and a half or so years, about six and a half years ago, um, I had this really awesome opportunity, and by that I mean horrible opportunity. I uh, spent five days at something called the Ultimate Leadership Workshop. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Henry Cloud and John Townsend. There's the, they're these famous uh, counselor therapist guys. They've written tons of books. Boundaries is their probably most famous book. In fact, it was so famous, they wrote 14 versions of it. Boundaries for this, boundaries for that, boundaries for your dog. I mean, everything. Boundaries for everything. And so they host this thing called the Ultimate Leadership Workshop, which as a leader sounds really fun to go to. Now, it's false advertising. It's not a leadership workshop. It was a five-day therapy session. That's what it was. But if they called it that, no one would sign up. So bait and switch was the only opportunity to get me to sign up. So I looked at it, and what I realized is it sounded like a pretty cool thing to go to. And I'll tell you what really hooked me was the tagline. The, the tagline for the workshop was helping you discover what's holding you back. And I thought, that seems important. I know that there are things probably holding me back as a leader, as a husband, as a father, right, as a neighbor, all the things. And so if I could spend a few days with some really sharp experts, Cloud and Townsend, and figure out what was holding me back, that seemed like something worth doing. So I flew into California, uh, checked into this hotel where the conference was going to be out slash therapy session, conference in disguise therapy session. Uh, and really just decided I'm going to like be all in on this. Now, you guys don't all know me very well, but I'm not like the first person at the party to go, let me share my darkest sins with you. Like, that's not how I roll. And so 
But I knew that at the therapy thing, they were going to ask us all these hard questions and we were going to have to like share and all this. And I didn't even know what was going to happen. I just decided I'm going to go with it. Whatever happens, I'm going to go with it. And the reason is I wanted to discover what was holding me back. If there was anything holding me back, I thought I owed it to myself. I owed it to the, the church I was leading, to my family. I mean, I owed it to the world, right, to figure out what was holding me back. Now, if you're like a younger person, if you're a kid, you're thinking, yeah, there's things holding me back too, right? My parents, my teachers, right? But just wait, like the older you get, more things hold you back. And the reason is because when you become an adult, adulting is hard. Like adulting's hard. The internet made up this term adulting. I love it. Adulting is hard, right? Because life is holding us back. When you're a kid, you've got a couple of things in the way, but the older you get, the more experiences that you have, those experiences seem to create obstacles at times for us. They, they, they tend to get in the way of our adulting life. Um, there, there's a couple of great ways to define adulting. Um, here, here's two of my favorite definitions. Adulting, adulting is like looking both ways before crossing the street and then getting hit by an airplane. <laughs> That's what adulting feels like sometimes, right? Or maybe we would say, this is my favorite definition, adulting, adulting's easy. It's like riding a bike, except that for the bike is on fire and everything is on fire and you're in hell. That's, that's what adulting feels like sometimes, right? For those of you who are adults, you know, it, it is just a nightmare, right? Adulting is so hard. And the reason adulting is hard is because there's just so much about adulting that's holding you back, right? Adulting is hard because life holds you back. Think about all the things we have to do as adults. You're supposed to get a job and you're supposed to keep that job. I mean, good grief, that's hard, you know? You're, you're supposed to pay taxes. We won't even talk about all of that, but you're supposed to do it, right? I don't want any of you to be arrested this morning, but you're supposed to pay taxes. You're supposed to pay your bills on time, by the way. The creditors do not like it when you miss payments. You're supposed to do it on time. You're, you're supposed to have a budget because, again, you need to pay those bills and do all the things with the money. I mean, it's so hard, just money alone. Then you gotta cook stuff. You can't eat out all the time because you don't have enough money. So you gotta cook stuff and it has to be edible and it can't kill you. That's hard. You have to be on time to things like work because of the keeping the job thing. Like being on time is hard. For some of you, it's really challenging. I know, right? Like it's so hard. And your spouse, if you're married, they cannot understand it. But it's hard for you. Adulting's hard, you know? You have to get the oil changed in your car. I don't know why we're still doing this. Like how have you not figured out a way to avoid that? Well, I guess we have electric cars, but... I remember, listen, as an adult, I think it took me 10 years to finally not feel like the oil change was sneaking up upon me. I mean, I can't even tell you many times I looked up at that little sticker and thought, shoot, you know, I missed it again by 6,000 miles. How did that happen? You know, it's so hard to keep up with all that stuff. You're supposed to shower, you know, as an adult and brush your teeth and you're supposed to floss. Who does that? You're like overachievers, right? Like there's just so much to do. There's so much to do as an adult to really be an adult, to adult well. Now, my assumption is that most of you, you're like a higher than a normal IQ crowd. You've figured all these things out. I mean, you're not like experts at it. I mean, I know you don't floss and stuff, right? But for the most part, for the most part, you have figured out adulting. Like for the most part, you've got all of these things pretty under control. But it isn't really the external stuff that causes us the greatest problem, right? The external stuff isn't the soundtrack that's playing in our hearts and in our souls that's holding us back. It's something deeper than that. It's something a little more difficult to identify, a little more difficult to deal with. And really, it's often what lies beneath the surface of our adult heart that keeps us from adulting well. If you think about it, for the most part, 
It isn't the external stuff. It's not the getting the job. It's not the managing a relationship. It's the internal stuff that makes the job hard. It's the internal stuff that's affecting the relationships. It's this internal stuff beneath the surface that's harming us, that's keeping us from moving forward in our life. That, that's kind of what I felt might be happening with me six and a half years ago. And that's why I decided to go to that ultimate leadership workshop slash therapy session. So at this workshop, basically what we did for five days is have breakfast. We would go into like a larger group meeting. There were probably 40 of us there. One of the guys, Cloud or Townsend, they would talk for 30 minutes about a topic, and then they would dismiss us to our small group setting. Now, I don't know if you've um, like ever uh, been in a small group before. Small groups, I've been in small groups for probably 17 years. They're awesome. Like small groups are so great. You're, you have usually dessert, some coffee or tea. People, you laugh together. I mean, you talk together. I mean, you care for each other. I mean, small groups are incredible. Take everything incredible you know about small groups. The opposite of that is what we did at this conference. We would leave our large group session, go into the small group experience, and there would be a therapist in the room waiting for us. We would walk in with our small group. We would sit down in a circle, and the therapist would say, who has something they would like to share? And then we would sit there just like this until somebody opened their mouth. I can't even count how many times I heard the therapist say, how does that make you feel? <laughs> if you've ever been to counseling, you've heard that. How does that make you feel? I don't know, hungry, angry? I mean, those are the two emotions that men typically have, you know? And so I'm sitting there listening to this, you know, conversation day after day after day. And it was challenging to sit in there. And I would share some, but, you know, I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. It just feels so weird. And so on Wednesday, on Wednesday, I just remember it like yesterday. On Wednesday, six and a half years ago, I walked into this, you know, circle we sat down. The therapist said, who has something they would like to share? And it was real quiet. It was only for probably 20 seconds. It felt like an hour. You know how silence feels, you know? And about 20 seconds later, I said, well, I, I have something I'm trying to figure out. So I started talking about something. And I, I don't know, a few minutes in, the therapist stops me. She says, hey, Gavin, can I just interrupt you for a minute? And I was like, yes, please. You know, how does that make me feel? Is that the question? You know? She goes, can I interrupt you for a minute? She said, would you mind um, standing up in the middle of the circle for a minute? And I said, yes, I absolutely would mind. You know? <laughs> That's what I said internally, but I, I had promised myself, I'm gonna go through with this. Like whatever they ask me to do, you know, stand on my head, whatever, I'm gonna do it, you know? So she said, can you stand in the, in the center of the circle for a second? And I said, yeah, uh, okay. So I stood up and kind of stepped forward in the middle. And um, she says, I, is it okay if we all stand up and put one hand on like your shoulder, do you mind if we do that? Now, I'm a pastor. I know exactly where this is going. We're all gonna stand and lay hands on Gavin and we're all gonna pray for this poor moron who can't figure out what's holding him back. That's what we're about to do, right? So I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, you guys, yeah, sure, you know? So they stand up and everybody kind of stands around me and they put their hand on me and I bow my head because I know what's happening. You know, the therapist goes, no, you can look around. I was like, oh, like I open prayer. This would be cool. So, so I'm standing there with all these hands on me and she says to me, she says, these hands represent who you are. These hands represent who you are. Now, just for a second, um, who wants to come up here and do that? I'm just kidding. No, you don't have to do that. But <laughs> you don't, trust me, you don't want to do it. Uh, you, don't, you don't know where it's going. But do me a favor for a minute. Just pretend that you're at the Ultimate Leadership Workshop slash Therapy Hell session for a week, okay? Pretend you're there. And then just, you're standing in the circle, everybody's around you, and a therapist looks at you and says, you know, who are you? 
do me a favor, no matter if you're at a different campus, it doesn't matter, online, turn to somebody beside you and just list one thing that describes who you are. Just one thing, okay? Go, right now. Tell somebody beside you one thing that describes who you are. This is not that, that not hard, and you can't fail this test. There are no wrong answers. Okay, you ready? Okay. I suspect... I suspect that a lot of you said things like husband or wife or parent or child, pastor. That's one of the things I would say, friend, athlete, athletic supporter. Some of you, you're one or the other, you know, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> you're an employee, you're a, a boss, you're tall, you know, you're thin, you're big boned. I mean, all the things, you know, you're, you're one of these things, you know. What's so amazing about this conversation, this who we are conversation, is that so often when we think about who we are, what we do is we allow uh, to, to kind of what we do to define who we are, right? We allow what we do to define who we are. And the reason we do that is because that's what we've been taught our whole life, right? When you were two, somebody said, oh, you're a toddler. You're a nightmare, but you're a toddler, then somebody said, oh, you're three. You're just as worse. In fact, you're worse now, you know? Then somebody said, you're a kindergartner. And you were so excited, you know, because you're a kindergartner now. And then they were like, hey, congrats. You're a kindergartner again, you know? Third time's the charm. No, I was kidding. None of you did that. But you remember, you, you go to second grade and you graduate. You graduate because of what you did. You passed second grade. Congratulations. That was hard for some of us. And then you get to third grade. And what were you? A third grader. When somebody saw you like the first day of summer after second grade and somebody says, hey, who are you? And you, what did you say? Third grader. It's who you were. And it was all defined based on what you did. That's kind of how life is. It's always being defined by what we do. Another word for this is it's our identity. Our identity is being formed all the time. And it's almost exclusively being formed by the things that we do. Because who we are, our, our identity is often directly connected with our behaviors. It's directly connected with what we do. Now, now there are some problems, though, with that definition. When we begin to define our identity based on what we do, it creates some pretty big soundtrack problems for us. I mean, think about it. You define yourself as a husband, or you define yourself as a wife. But then what happens when... It doesn't work out. What happens when there's divorce papers? What, what happens when maybe a spouse dies and you were defined as a husband, as a wife? I mean, I know it's heavy, but just think about it. If you define yourself as a parent, but then maybe something happens with your child, or you have been looking forward to defining yourself as a parent your whole life, and you can't have children, I mean, you define yourself as a businessman, a businesswoman, and then you're fired. Or you define yourself as an entrepreneur and the business fails again, right? I mean, when we begin to allow our identity to be formed and, and founded upon what we do, it creates so many problems for us. I mean, when, when, what, we, when what we do defines who we are, our identity is circumstantial. It's always depending on the moment. It's full of fear. It's fearful. And it's really, really fragile. It can fall apart at any minute. If I can take you back to that therapy session, the leadership conference for a minute. 
I'm standing in that circle. And as I'm standing there, all these people are around me and they're putting hands on me. And that therapist says, hey, Gavin, I want you to take one hand off. And as you do, I want you to name one thing that you are. And I looked around and I'm like, man, there's like eight hands here. That's gonna be, it's gonna be a little challenging. So I said, okay, you know. So I started with the thing I thought was most important, husband, you know, husband's more important than parent. So I, I, I took that hand off and I said, I'm a husband. And I said, I'm a parent. Third hand, I'm a pastor. Fourth hand, uh, I'm a consultant. I'm a speaker. I'm a writer. I'm beginning to run out of things. So I had to think a little harder. Eventually, I made it around the circle and all those hands were now removed. And the therapist said, okay, everybody sit back down except for Gavin. And the therapist looked at me and she said something that was so defining for my adult life. She defined a soundtrack for me that had been holding me back probably since I was born. She looks at me and she says, okay, Gavin, now all of that is gone. Who are you? Now that all of those things that you just listed, all, they're all gone. Who are you? What's, what's left? What is your identity? Can I get, just get super personal for a minute? This really was a defining moment in the soundtrack of my adult life. This was so defining for me. I began very quickly to think about my life. I began to think about my identity. I began to think about how I had always lived. I began to think about high school experiences where I was a basketball player who got cut from a team. I began to think about why I broke so many tennis rackets on the tennis team. Only when I was losing though, right? I began to think about how good it felt for someone to say, you are the best boyfriend. I, I, I began to think about why I loved my wife the way that I did, not just because, but because I wanted to be told that my identity was a good husband. I began to think about how almost everything in my life was so wrapped up with what I was doing, that my identity was basically a summation of my achievements, of my performances. When I would speak, um, I would walk off a stage and people would say, that was so good. And I felt like my identity was a good speaker. And then somebody else a minute later would say, you're really getting better. And I would think, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, how bad was I, you know? Or how much better could I be? But my identity was so circumstantial and it was so fragile. You know what I learned in that one question? I learned that what I did defined who I was. What I did defined who I was. I bet that is true for all of us. To some extent, we all tend to allow our identity to be formed on our achievements, our performance. And it keeps us from doing things where we may fail. Because if you fail and your identity is wrapped up in what you do, what are you? A failure. It keeps us from trying things. It keeps us from moving forward. It keeps us from experimenting good kinds. It keeps us from fully loving people. It keeps us from actually fully following Jesus. I, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you if you're not a Jesus follower. I mean, just for a second, if you're not a Christian, you're not a, a Jesus person, 
Um, I mean, I get it. it. It can be difficult or challenging to put your faith in Jesus, mostly because, not Jesus, but because of what you see in Jesus' followers. I totally get it. Jesus' followers can be the worst people. And the reason is they just aren't living the life Jesus has called them to. But part of it is because we're all human. I know that it looks hypocritical, but the reason we're hypocritical is because we're just like you. We're just people. And we don't get it right all the time. And I think we're trying, but we just stink at it sometimes. It's just the reality of life. Part of it is that we allow those soundtracks like our identity to get messed up. That's why we keep messing it up. If you're not a Christian, my only advice to you is probably just don't screw it up. Don't fail. Don't try anything hard, right? Because if your identity is gonna be founded upon what you do, you better be good at what you do. Like you better not mess up. Like you can't get it wrong because then your identity will be all messed up. Here's the best news though. If you are a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower, or if you're not, but you're thinking about it, there is a completely different solution to this problem. There is a different soundtrack that we should be listening to. There's a different soundtrack that we should be living out of. The perfect person to teach this to us is this guy named the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is so good for this conversation, this soundtrack conversation, because the Apostle Paul was the most, or one of the, you know, the most religious people, okay, in the first century. He was like the God guy of all God guys. He was doing everything he could to get in good with God and make sure everybody else did as well. He was a Pharisee, and that's what these guys did. And here's what Paul believed, what all the Pharisees believed and what all the Jewish people believed. They believed that God was a good God, that he had given them a lot of good rules for their protection, but also for their right standing. And so if you followed all the rules of God, you were in good with God. If you broke the rules of God, then you had to sacrifice something, a pigeon, a bull, a calf, to get back in good with God because when something sins, something has to die. And so there was this system and it was all based on behavior. So you can so easily see like how Paul's identity was wrapped up in what he did. Who Paul was was defined based on what he did. And he was trying to be a really good God person. He loved God so much and hated Christianity so much because he thought it was wrong that he was a Christian mercenary. He was trying to stamp out Christianity to the best of his ability. He had letters of permission from governors and people around that he could arrest, imprison, and even execute Christians to get rid of this movement until one day he meets Jesus. And he goes from being a mercenary to the greatest Christian missionary of all times. Just for a second, this is not today's topic, but if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Jesus person, if you don't believe in that, I would challenge you to study the life of Paul, the apostle Paul, and here's why. What would happen in your life to cause you to make a complete 180 degree turn and eventually be executed for it? and never recant. I mean, something so significant happened to Paul that he allowed himself to die, not for something that he was told, but for something that he experienced and saw firsthand. It's a, it's, it's a question you have to figure out. So back to Paul. Paul is planting all these churches and he's writing these letters. And in two different letters, I'm gonna show you just two really small sections of the letters that he wrote. Um, it so perfectly defines the tension of our identity and what we should probably do instead. So the first one is in Philippians, the church of Philippi. He says this to them. This is so amazing. Paul, he's like, he's kind of being cocky in a funny way. He says, though I could have confidence in my own efforts, basically saying, though I could be confident in my behavior, because look how good my identity is, because look how good I am. 
That's what he's saying. If anyone could, indeed, if others, if others have reasons uh, for confidence in their own efforts, I'm even better. I have even more. Like you think you're good? <laughs> you're not as good as me. I'm way better than you. Look at what he says next. He's talking to Jewish people. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. That's like how it was supposed to happen. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience of the Jewish law. I was so zealous, he continues, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church and for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I mean, basically what Paul is saying is, if you think your identity is formed because of your behavior, my identity is even better than yours. Like when it comes to me and God, no one was better than me. When it came to my behavior, no one was better than me, no one. And he says, I once thought, I used to think that these things, all these behavior things, I used to think that, that these things were valuable, but now, now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Not because of what he has done, not because of what Paul has done, but because of what Jesus has done. Now, what has Jesus done? What Jesus did is come to the earth, God in a bod, right? Fully man, but fully God. He came to earth, he lived, he sacrificed his perfect life for our imperfect life because when someone sins, something dies and Jesus decided to be that death. He decided to be that sacrifice for you so that we could have a right standing relationship with God, not through our behavior, but instead through our belief in that Jesus did it for us. That's what Jesus did. By the way, that's why we call it the gospel, the good news, because there's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to deserve a right standing with God. And because God is so loving, merciful, and gracious, he didn't ask you to try. He let Jesus do it for you. That's what Christ has done. Now, if you're following along with this identity thing, basically what Paul is suggesting is that you don't have to behave your way into an identity with God because of what Jesus has done for you. He did the behaving so that your identity could be built on something different. In another letter, Paul explains that identity. He says, let me, let me put it another way. He said, the law was given, uh, the law was our guardian, like our protector, right? It was our identity. It's the way he's basically saying it. That the law of God was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us. Uh, when we could, until we could be made right with God through faith, not through works, through behavior. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Paul's a little hard to follow at times, but basically all he's saying is that before Jesus did what he did, our only way to kind of get in good with God and have the right identity with God was to behave our way in. But now because of what Jesus has done, all of that is gone. The law is still there, but not for your getting in with God just to protect you and make your life better. Like not because God will love you more or less if you behave, but just because he wants you not to be harmed. That everything about your identity can be different now. So, so basically, here's the question. Who are we, Paul? Like if we're not, if we're not, uh, our, our identity isn't founded on our behavior, then who are we? Well, what is our identity? And Paul says, I'm so glad you asked. For you, 
For you are children of God. That's your identity. For you are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul used this phrase, children of God, for a very specific reason. Because God is our heavenly father, our perfect heavenly father. And when you put your faith in Jesus and the work that he has done, your identity can be made different and you're given a new identity. Child of God is the identity that you're given. Not husband, not friend, not boyfriend, not girlfriend, not wife, not worker, coworker, boss, employee. None of those things anymore are your identity. It's all replaced. It's all replaced by one thing. You're a, a child of God. You know what the identity of a child of God comes with? It's pretty spectacular. A child of God means that you are free. Like you're completely free. When you mess up, when you sin, you're forgiven. You're so free that you want to pursue a life of love and a life of followership with God not to earn anything, just because you're free to have a better life. You're completely free. As a child of God, you have a righteousness. Righteousness is a fancy church word for having a right standing. The minute that you place your faith in Jesus and you become a child of God, you are made right with God forever. No matter what has happened, no matter what's happening right now, no matter what you're about to do when you leave the church parking lot, you know, I mean, you are so right with God because of your faith. You can do basically anything. There will be consequences on this earth, but you will never suffer the consequence of God not loving you. That right standing is sealed forever. Another consequence, you're made new. The old you is gone. The old identity is gone. The new has come. You're a saint. When God looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees a perfect child of God. Now, I don't know if they're going to build a statue of you. They might one day. But you're seen in the same way that God saw Peter, that God sees Paul, that God sees any of these, like, you know, monuments of faith. He sees you the same way. That's your identity. He, you're a masterpiece, meaning everything about you is exactly the way God wanted it to be. He made you perfect. Your, your whole, this is a big one. When you think about your identity being made whole, it means that the things in your life that have kind of taken parts of you away can all be made whole again. When that person harms you, when that person left you, it can all be made right because your identity is different. You can be made whole. That, that you're loved no matter what you do, and you're free to love no matter what you do. That you're treasured, that God sees you as a perfect treasure of his, like a perfect father would see. I mean, think about, just for a second, think about how staggeringly different our life would be if we allowed that to define our identity. I mean, think about how unbelievable our life could be if we allowed that to define our identity. If you're not a Christian, I don't, know, I don't know how you can live with a better identity other than just getting it right. And as a Jesus follower, you don't have to struggle through that because you're already made right. 
Your faith has made your identity right. There is a different soundtrack that you can listen to. You know, when I think about how this applies to us, it's just, it's so amazing. I mean, we said this earlier, right? Like, like what, what you do, you know, uh, what you do shouldn't define who you are. But think about it this way too. What you do, what you do should be informed by who you are. See, when you begin to live out of that new identity of child of God, it informs everything about your life. When you begin to live like a free child of God, you become the best husband, the best wife you could ever imagine being. You know why? Because you are no longer allowing your definition of your identity to be husband, wife. You're allowing it to be child of God who gets to be a husband. If you wanna be a great parent, own your identity as a child of God. You'll be the best parent a kid could ever have. If you wanna be a great worker, a great boss, a great employee, just be a child of God who's free. You'll be the best worker you've ever met. Everything about your world gets better when your identity is founded in something that isn't fragile, that isn't circumstantial, and isn't full of fear. When I, when I was standing in that circle at the uh, workshop, you know, slash therapy session, and, and everybody sat back down and that therapist looked at me and, and she said, you know, Gavin, with all of this is gone now, it's all gone, who are you? And I stood there and I knew that I had to answer. I, I couldn't just stand there, you know? So I thought for a minute and I didn't want to answer because I knew the answer but also knew that I had to say it out loud, you know? Like I knew that I had, to, I had to say it. So I looked at her and I kind of looked around the room and I, I just said, I, I don't know. I don't know. Like I intellectually knew who I was. Like I knew the right answers. I mean, I'm a pastor. I've been a Christian since I was seven, you know? Like I know the Bible answer. Like I know who are you, Jesus. I mean, I pray Bible. Like I know that. But there's such a big difference, isn't there, between knowing something and experiencing something. And as I stood there in that moment, I just had to admit out loud, maybe for the first time, I, I, don't, I don't really know who I am. Because everything about my identity is completely wrapped up in what I do. Everything about my life defines who I am. My achievements, my failures, the good things, the bad things. And I, and I stood there for a while and I began to think, I wonder what it would look like to actually let God define my identity. And, and not just intellectually, like I wonder what it would look like for me to believe that I'm a child of God, to, to actually believe that I'm free, for me to actually believe that I'm loved. And this is so weird to say, and I feel like a guy, it's even harder, but like for me to believe that I'm treasured, for me to believe that I am a masterpiece, that that's, that that's actually even possible. See, that's, that's actually what God wants you to feel. The world is gonna constantly tell you that what you do is going to define who you are. But God sent Jesus to die for you so that you don't have to have that identity anymore. Your identity could be something better. The soundtrack that's driving who you are could be better. And what's holding you back 
could be removed. Because when you begin to experience the freedom that's found in living as a child of God, nothing holds you back anymore. Let me ask you one final question before we go. Who are, who are you? Who are you? And maybe a better question is, do you know Jesus or do you just know about Jesus? See, knowing about Jesus isn't enough to really affect your identity. And you can't live without an identity. You're going to form it. It's either though gonna be formed by the people in the world and your success, or it's going to be formed by your heavenly father. You get to choose. But, but do you know Jesus or do you just know about Jesus? How you answer that question will ultimately determine the soundtrack that drives your life. Can I pray for you? Heavenly Father, this actually felt kind of heavy, but I think it is because I just don't think we think enough about who we really are. And it's hard to think about because we, we know that we have successes, but we, I mean, we know all of our failures. We know all of our misgivings. We know all of the missteps. We know all the mistakes. And so we, we just, we allow those things to define us. And in doing so, we walk around all day trying to be better and trying to behave our way into an identity that we're never gonna find fulfilling and satisfying because it's just so fragile. So God, I just pray, the way that the Apostle Paul said it, I pray that we will own the fact that through faith, we are a child of God and that we are free, we are loved, we are treasured, we're a masterpiece. And I pray that that identity will begin to inform everything about how we treat others and how we treat ourselves. And maybe that soundtrack that we've been believing in and listening to, maybe it could be replaced and a new record could be played. One that reminds us every single day of who we really are. So God, I know for all of us, this just hits differently in different situations and different experiences. I just pray that you will kind of enter into our lives and our hearts, that your spirit will allow us to know what to do with that. And then I pray that you will give us kind of the, the, the wisdom as we move forward in our life to figure out how to really know you, not just know about you, so that our identity can be formed in something that is never, ever fragile. God, we love you. In Jesus, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for having me um, with you guys. Love being at RCC. And don't forget, um, next week, we'd love to have you Sunday night for that evening of vision. Hey, thanks so much.